0: If you have been affected by gun violence, um, please. please please raise your hand to to honor those you have lost.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm John Donvan, and that recording you just heard, captured by ABC News back in 2018, was of a student at a DC charter school standing in a crowded auditorium. It went viral after he asked for that show of hands a sea of hands promptly shot up. That was three years ago. The situation is worse now. Gun violence is surging across the U.S. despite lockdowns and social distancing. 2020 ended up as one of America's most violent years in decades. 2021 is following a similar path. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden has laid out a strategy.
2: Well, there's no one size fits all approach. uh, We know there are some things that work
1: Biden's plan involves things like targeting illicit gun dealers and upping police budgets and bolstering community prevention efforts. Well, all this got us thinking here at Intelligence Squared, where we've done a series of debates over the years centered on guns. And many of the questions we debated over the years are still relevant right now. And in light of that, we thought we would bring you something a little different today. Instead of just one debate, we are bringing you three, or at least parts of three. The first one takes aim at the Second Amendment and whether it has outlived its usefulness. The second debate focuses on the controversial position of whether firearms, and in particular the ability to carry a concealed handgun, can actually reduce crime. Finally, we take a more recent look at the police, the guns they use, and whether police departments have become too militarized. So let's kick off this program on guns in three acts with Act One. The motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to persuade you to vote for this motion, let's welcome Sanford Levinson, ladies and gentlemen.
3: So let me give you the two reasons why I think the Second Amendment has outlived its usefulness in the 21st century. The first reason is precisely that it is anti-federal. That is to say, one of the anomalies, sometimes it's very difficult to tell the players without a scorecard, in the debate about gun rights. There are many, many people who define themselves as conservatives who rail against a rampaging national government that believes in one-size-fits-all solutions to national problems, well, this is not necessarily what Heller decides, but it is what the Supreme Court decided two years later in the McDonald case, where it held that every state in the union has to toe a single line. Louis Brandeis spoke very eloquently of states as little laboratories of experimentation most states have chosen to experiment in favor of gun rights there are some states or cities uh very dense cities like washington dc that would prefer different experiments or in new york itself one can well imagine a particular policy for the great cities of new york and a very different policy for Uh, upstate New York, where there are far, far more hunters than is the case in Manhattan, say. And one of the things that a single national constitutional amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, does is to stifle that kind of federalism. And I think that's a mistake. But there's a second real problem with constitutionalizing the right to bear arms in the 21st century. The right to bear arms, or the Second Amendment, had a kind of cosmetic value until 2008. It's not that people didn't write about it. I wrote about it. A number of people found it very interesting. But it played remarkably little role in actual American law beginning with Heller, it does play a role. But what does that mean? It means that you turn over decision-making power to a group of federal judges who are highly divided, who have no expertise in this area, and who make often um, quite Uh, remarkable, even unreasoned distinctions. Thus, for example, in Heller, Justice Scalia says that Dick Heller is protected, which I think is a perfectly plausible argument, but he suggests that Martha Stewart is not because she actually lied to an FBI agent and is thus a convicted felon. I don't think judges should be making those kinds of decisions. I think legislators should. Thank you, Sandy Levinson. Our motion is the
1: constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to argue against this motion, David Kopel, he is research director at the Independence Institute, an adjunct professor at Denver University's Sturm College of Law, and associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Kopel.
2: Thank you.
4: Thank you. Why is the Second Amendment necessary? Today, to protect people from local bigoted governments. It was necessary in the civil rights era, when civil rights workers frequently had to arm themselves in the South uh, for protection against the domestic terrorist organization known as the Ku Klux Klan, when local police were often complicit with the Klan. It's why the Deacons for Defense and Justice were formed in Bogalusa, Louisiana, in 1965 to successfully provide armed protection to organizations such as the Congress of Racial Equality. It was necessary in Washington, D.C., where Dick Heller spent every day as an armed guard at the Federal Judicial Center and was not allowed by the D.C. City Council to use any firearm in his home ever for lawful self-defense against a violent home invader. It was necessary in Chicago, where Otis McDonald, a 70-year-old Korean War veteran, received personal death threats from gangsters because of his anti-gang work. And Chicago said, well, you can have a rifle or a shotgun. He knew how to use a rifle. He'd been in the Korean War, but for his condition in the apartment he lived in with his physical strength and agility and the current status it was, the handgun was the right choice for him for self-defense. And the bigoted city council of Chicago would not allow him to use that. And that's why the second amendment was necessary. And it's necessary in New York City right now. If you have a handgun permit in New York City, You can go on a trip. You can drive from Brooklyn all the way to Seattle and lawfully carry that gun in in, in your car in every state across the country, and it's a good, secure thing to have in case your car breaks down in the middle of the night someplace on a deserted road. But the New York City Police Department won't let you take the handgun out of the city. There is no rational basis for that prohibition. It is purely for the oppression of gun owners To the detriment of self-defense, it is a dangerous law, and a Second Amendment lawsuit will likely be necessary to remove that. I urge you to vote against this deadly, dangerous proposition to vote for public safety based on the recognition that today the Second Amendment remains vitally necessary to the security of a free state. Thank Thank you. Thank you, David Kopel.
1: Now on to our next debate. We did this one more than 10 years ago, but the topic was so controversial, we felt compelled to include it. The motion language was, guns reduce crime. Have a listen. Only rarely does a man of ideas witness in his own lifetime the opportunity to actually see one of his ideas change history. For a scholar who wrote a controversial book in the 1990s arguing that Where there is more gun ownership, there is actually less crime. That history-making experience took place. Legislatures across the country took hold of the ideas in that book and passed laws allowing for the carrying of concealed weapons. That, indeed, was history-making. The author of that idea and of the book that contained those ideas is our first debater tonight, speaking for the motion Guns Reduce Crime, John Lott.
5: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, Mr. Rosencrantz putting this on, and it's an honor to be invited here. uh, The introduction was overly generous. But uh, guns cause bad things to happen, and and guns make it easier for bad things to happen. But guns also make it easier for people to protect themselves and prevent bad things from happening. Guns make it easier for you to harm somebody, but guns also make it easier for you to deter criminals from attacking to begin with and turn out to be the most effective way for somebody to go and defend themselves when they're having to face a criminal by themselves. It'd be great if police were there all the time. My research finds that police are probably the single most important factor for reducing crime. But I think one thing the police understand themselves is they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And the question you have to ask is, what do you advise someone having to do when they're having to confront a criminal by themselves? Even if they're able to call 911, you know, fast response times are measured in eight or nine or 10 minutes. And that can be a lifetime for many people. I think, as Mr. Rosenkrantz was mentioning to begin with, a lot of people have a pretty good idea of the bad things that happen with guns. He mentioned uh, the number of suicides. But you also have, if you look at surveys done by the Justice Department, you'll find maybe about 400, 450,000 crimes are committed each year with guns. By contrast, you have similar types of surveys that indicate that people use guns defensively about two million times a year. So about four to five times more frequently, people use guns to stop crime than guns are used in the commission of crime. And yet people are, if anything, likely to guess the opposite. I mean, if, you have, if you're an editor of a newspaper and you have two crimes that you're talking about, one, there's a dead body on the ground, sympathetic person like a victim. In another case where a woman's brandished a gun, would-be criminals run away, no shots are fired, no dead body on the ground, it's pretty obvious which story is gonna be considered much more newsworthy. Now, we all wanna try to take guns away from criminals. I mean, one obvious thing that's been tried many times is to go and have gun bans. The problem is that when you go and pass something like that, the question you have to ask yourself many times is who's most likely to obey the rule? If it turns out that it's the most law-abiding citizens who obey the rule and turn in their guns, relative to criminals, you can actually increase[s] in violent crime. In Washington, D.C., uh, is one important example of that. If you look in 1976, September 76, D.C. passed uh, a ban banning handguns. It didn't go into effect until February 77, uh, but only once after 76 was D.C.'s murder rate as low as it was in 76. Only twice in two years after that was D.C.'s robbery rate as low as it was in, in 76. And D.C.'s crime rate not only went up relative to what it was in the past, D.C.'s crime rate went up relative to neighboring states, It went up compared to the United States as a whole, and it went up relative to other large cities. Here's a graph that shows you for the top 50 cities in the United States. In 1976, DC was about 18 percentage points higher than the other 49 cities in the top 50. You can see after that, it keeps on going up, and if I were to have it in 88, it even soars dramatically past that, but you can see it's about uh, 90% higher when you get to 1987. The rate was falling before the ban relative to other cities and rising dramatically afterwards. It's not just D.C., though. In Chicago, Chicago's murder and robbery rates were falling prior to the 1982 ban, and they rose afterwards. They rose relative to other cities. One other way I can just mention for D.C. here, D.C. was 15th of the top 50 cities prior to the ban. In half the years after the ban, it was either number one or number two, and it was number four in another four years. So two-thirds of the time after the ban... It was one of the top four cities. It was nowhere even close to that prior to the ban going into effect. But it's just not in the United States. Worldwide, time after time, and it'd be interesting to have people try to show an example where this isn't true, when you pass bans, you see increases in violent crime rates. The U.K., here's an illustration from The Economist. They banned handguns in January '97. Robbery rates, armed robbery rates were falling up until the time the ban went into effect and they rose afterwards. If you continue this graph, they'd continue to go up. You've had a 340% increase since the ban went into effect and the rate at which people are harmed by guns. You look at Ireland, Jamaica. I mean, one thing is people go and say, well, the reason why the Chicago and D.C. bans didn't work is because it's so easy to go and get access to guns in other places. Well, here you have ideal situations. You have island nations where it's relatively easy to go and enforce the borders and protect them, and yet they've seen huge increases in the numbers of illegal guns, because essentially all of them are illegal after these bans go into effect. And yet, just as we see here in the UK, if you look at Ireland or or Jamaica or other places, you see time after time increases in robbery and murder rates and violent crimes. Now, one thing people often do is they look across countries and they say, well, look, England has a relatively low gun ownership rate, has a relatively high murder rate, even if their violent crime rate is twice what we are in the United States. And they may point to Japan or Germany or other countries. And they say the United States has more guns, more violent crime. But the thing they have to take into account is these other countries had much, much lower violent crime rates prior to bans going into effect. In, In 1900, for example, in England, in London, a city of millions of people, with no gun regulations, you had two gun murders and five armed gun robberies that took place. And what you see time after time, when these bans go into effect, either drop violent crime rights no longer drop or they begin to start to go up, as you've seen in England and other countries. Probably one of the most controversial things we could talk about are gun-free zones that we have in the United States for things like schools or other places. And we hear about these things, they they dominate the news. But yet one fact doesn't go out. You cannot find one of these multiple victim public shootings in the United States that occur that takes place where more than three three people are killed that doesn't take place in a gun-free zone where civilians are banned from owning guns. You want to make places safer. Banning guns you think are the easy solution to that. But again, if you pass a ban, and it's the law-abiding good citizens who obey the ban and not the criminals, rather than making it safe for the would-be victims, you may unintentionally make it safe for the criminals who are intent on trying to harm others and make less for them to worry about. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John Lott. It's firsthand experience, and certainly of everyone in our panel, no one has actual more first hand experience dealing with guns and crime than the chief of police of Seattle Gil Kurlykowski.
2: Thank you John. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I was uh, worried that they wouldn't bring that story out and I wanted to make sure that I did full disclosure and uh, of course I also appreciate the Seattle like weather uh, uh, during the last couple of days. <laughs> Let me give you a perspective from a police chief's point of view. First of all, you have to understand that the position of police chief is not, uh, uh, whether it's Ray Kelly, myself, or others, we all actually worked our way up through the ranks. Um, a puff of white smoke didn't emanate from City Hall, and suddenly we became anointed with these positions. All of us worked as police officers and detectives and sergeants, etc. So we, we kind of understand some of the nitty-gritty, although the television shows here in New York are so much better. <laughs> the right to uh, Seattle, we'd have latte stories or something. But the right to own and possess a gun in this country isn't a debatable issue, and it's not the topic. Reasonableness, though, and common sense do come into play. I'm not a researcher, and I am certainly not going to play a researcher for this debate tonight, but I do want to cite a couple things because it provides a framework for you, but it also puts into my perspective 36 years of law enforcement experience. This is work done by Phil Cook, so the rates of assault, robbery, and rape will not noticeably be affected by more guns. Increase in the secondary market of guns will occur. What is it in the secondary market? Loans to and from family members of firearms, off-the-book sales, meaning that there was no background check, thefts of guns, of which uh, was mentioned, I am personally familiar with. The percent of suicide with guns is highly correlated with the prevalence of gun ownership, and the murder rate in large counties is closely linked to gun prevalence. An increase in the gun murder rate would uh, be expected, but there was no effect on the non-gun murder rate. So, you're going to hear from the other side about the deterrence effect, and in fact John already brought a little bit about that up. More people, more people carrying more guns will deter criminals. In other words, the criminals will think twice before confronting a potential victim. I wish criminals were that smart. On the other hand, I'm really glad that they're not that smart because that's why we catch so many of them all the time. Since we have uh, almost uh, in the neighborhood of 240 million guns in the United States, I would think that these criminals would already get the message that there are a lot of guns out there and that if deterrence was in fact uh, carried through that uh, we would have seen it by now, but we haven't. The other side of this coin is, will more armed citizens have an opposite effect on criminals? In other words, are the criminals going to now arm themselves, thinking that more and more and more people are carrying guns? Well, the union that represents the British bobbies, uh, who have been unarmed since Sir Robert Peel founded them, their union went forward and said, look, we do not want to be armed as bobbies in the UK. Now, this was during a time of uh, significant increases in crime, increases in knife crime, which is still going on. But they ask not to be armed. Now, there are some specialized units, certainly, uh, called uh, armed uh, response cars, et cetera. But for the vast majority of the bobbies in, the, in all of the UK, they are not armed. And they don't want to be because, one, they think it will only increase assaults on themselves, and that it will be a tit for tat or a proliferation of guns in the UK, which, like rabies, they have very few of. Who is carrying a gun now in this country, in the United States? Well, of course, law enforcement officers, state, federal, local, and security guards, security guards across all walks of life, from banks to armored car services, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that are already carrying guns. And then there's a whole other group of people, and those are the people that are able to go into their states and ask for a concealed firearms permit. There is a background check. It depends on the state, on on what's done. But essentially, they say, look, I sell jewelry, or I have a business that's been robbed. Or, you know what? I want to be able to carry a gun, like in Florida. And uh, they'll be able to carry a firearm as a concealed firearm. Here's the big unknown. Here's where research has not actually answered this question. All of these hundreds of thousands of cops out there and security guards and citizens who have concealed firearms permits, how many are actually carrying a gun? They may have the permits. They may have the authority. When you're a new police officer, you're usually armed to the teeth and within a few days or months or years or whatever, you oftentimes don't carry the gun. It used to be that you were required in police departments across the country to be armed uh, whenever you were out and about, off duty or on. Very few departments have those rules anymore because the gun is difficult to conceal, it is uncomfortable, and it is difficult to secure. So when we think of all the people that are actually out there, how many are actually armed, we don't know. Now whenever somebody gives you a simple solution to a complex problem, we all know that you can be assured of one thing, it's wrong. And so after all of the different campus shootings that we have talked about and read about just recently of course in uh, in Arkansas, we hear this hue and cry, well the, the students should be armed or the students and the faculty should be armed. and. Um, The outcome, as one academic told me, there is one sure outcome of arming the college students, and that would be uh, grade inflation. Um, (laughs) The last thing that I'll mention, let me me close with this. Let me close with this. When I was a young officer working the street in St. Petersburg, retired people, a lot of them from New York, in fact, uh, a young woman, 15 years old, intoxicated beating and beating and beating on the front door of an elderly couple who had no phone. They became more and more and more afraid. But she had been uh, there beating on the door. He turned to the thing that he felt could protect him the most, even though she was unable, of course, to get in. And she was just really an intoxicated kid who beating on the front door. He fired through the door and struck her. A girl about the age that his granddaughter could or would have been. And I remember going to the hospital and seeing her there. And I remember that family that lived, that husband and wife, in St. Petersburg for many, many years. There are lots of cases in which these guns could protect you. There are far more cases in which the gun does not. Thank you.
1: And finally, a more recent account of America's police departments. This focus on guns has to do with the hardware made available to cops on the street and the culture that comes with that. The question was simple. Have police become too militarized? For this debate format, which we call our unresolved format, we employ five debaters with varying perspectives. And we were lucky enough to draw Paul Butler, a former federal prosecutor and professor at Georgetown Law. Jason Johnson, who is president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, Raphael Mangual, who is Deputy Director of Legal Policy at the Manhattan Institute, Sue Rahr, former King County Sheriff, and Vikrant Reddy, a Senior Research Fellow at the Charles Koch Institute. Again, the question was, have the police become too militarized?
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
6: In the arena of equipment, I say no, but in the arena of a militarized culture, I say yes. Mm. Police Police are working in one of the most heavily armed countries in the world, and they have to be able to protect themselves and others. Equipment like armored personnel carriers and helicopters are critically important to rescue missions and to apprehend dangerous criminals and to rescue people. When I was sheriff in the metropolitan area, we relied on our helicopter to rescue hikers and to track down suspects. We absolutely needed an armored personnel carrier to manage dangerous situations involving hostages and armed people who were barricaded. We couldn't get to them to begin negotiating unless we had that armored personnel carrier. I acquired dozens and dozens of military rifles, not because they were more lethal. They were less lethal than what was available in the local gun store. But what they were was free, and I couldn't afford to buy enough rifles for my officers. Police officers know in many situations, rifles are much safer to use than handguns. The problem with military equipment is not the equipment itself, it's the way it's used and the way it's displayed, which gets us to the culture. Creating, <coughs> creating the image of the police engaged in war began in the 70s with the war on drugs, the war on crime It exploded in, after 9-11 with the war on terror. It's a political movement that morphed into popular culture. Remember the TV show SWAT? I don't know if anybody else is as old as me that remembers that. And, and that image was warmly embraced by the profession. We need to work intentionally to reclaim the culture of service and protection. The problem isn't the equipment. The problem is the culture.
1: Thank you, Sue Um The resolution, again, the police have become too militarized. Vikrant ready, are you a yes or a no on that?
7: I mean, yes. I often think on this issue about a a passage in the Odyssey, actually. In this moment in the Odyssey, Odysseus is about to host a banquet, and he tells his son at the banquet, you've got to confiscate all the men's swords. His son asks him why. He says, and I remember this line, because the sword itself incites to violence. Mm. The very act of holding the blade, the very act of holding a weapon, makes a person want to use it. Give All these police officers, very frequently young men, by the way, all these really interesting, fascinating weapons that were used in places like the Battle of Fallujah, they are looking for opportunities to use those weapons. They have uh, adopted a kind of warrior mindset whenever they're carrying these weapons around. Also note, by the way, that it goes beyond being a matter of culture. It is a matter of the equipment itself. If you've got an extremely heavy gun, one that you need both hands to hold, Uh, You can't be in a position where you're holding a gun with one hand, but trying to de-escalate or wave off the situation with the other. Uh, There are all sorts of ways in which the policing culture and the policing equipment just exhibit successive militarization. We could talk about the uniforms. I don't understand why police officers are frequently wearing camouflage. There are no jungles in downtown Houston or Omaha or Minneapolis. You see that sort of thing. I think we ought to be looking at uh, the ways in which we use SWAT, whether or not that's being used too frequently. I think we should look at use of force uh, training and tactics. If the person you're going after pulls out a gun, then sure, the police officer probably needs to pull out a gun. But if the person you're going after pulls out a baseball bat, do you need to pull out a gun? What is a police department's policy on that? Police departments should be reviewing all of these things because the militarization that's overtaken policing is a problem.
1: Thank you. We have the police have become too militarized. We have a yes and a no so far. Now on to Paul Butler. On the police have become too militarized. Paul Butler, are you a yes or a no?
8: I'm a yes with a shout out to whoever made this question last because it perfectly combines all of the other issues that we've debated about why the police uh, need to be defunded in the sense of having some of their money reallocated to social services. The problem with police unions, people know about this 1033 program where police departments got surplus military equipment From the Pentagon. And people think that President Obama stopped the program. He didn't. All he did was say that certain weapons like tanks and grenade launchers and bayonets were off limit. Fast forward to the Trump presidency, the Fraternal Order of Police National Convention, the Attorney General of the United States goes in like a conquering warrior and says, guess what? We've reinstated the program. You get your grenades, you get your tanks, and you get your bayonets back. Uh, The reports say that the audience of police officers stood up and cheered. What the hell do police need with a bayonet? How in the hell are they going to use that? only thing that I know for sure is that the people who are most likely to be victims are Black and brown people. We talk about SWATs. So SWAT stands now for Special Weapons and Special Weapons Assistant Team. Uh, Originally, the guy who came up with the acronym, the former police chief of Los Angeles, he wanted it to stand for Special Weapon Attack Team. They thought that that sounded too bad, so that's why they changed the name. But that gives you a sense of the problem, the cultural problem that Sue has done really good work on. The problem is that police officers think of themselves as warriors. It's us against them, and them is we the people, or we the people where the police are supposed to serve and protect. So if you think about somebody who applies for a job to be a warrior— as opposed to somebody who applies to be a guardian. It's a whole different skill set. It's a whole different reason why you want to do the work.
1: All right, Paul, I have to, I have to break in in the interest of time, but thank you very much for, for your opening statement. Uh, again, the resolution, the police have become too militarized. Our next speaker, Jason Johnson, you get your 90 seconds now.
9: Uh, no. Uh, no, but my thoughts my thoughts overlap to a great extent with with those of Sue Rahr. I, I do agree that there are certain cultural issues in policing that uh, have become you know I don't know if militarized is the right term, but they don't square with what is uh, the most effective approach to serve the community and in, in all the different ways that law enforcement organizations and officers are asked to serve the community. With respect to some of my, um, my colleagues here on the panel that are, that voted yes for this motion, who I have incredible respect for, I think in some ways it's a little bit naive. Uh, you know, we, we're in a country that has about 15 million military style assault weapons out there in, in general circulation. Uh, last year in 2019, there were 417 mass shootings. We still face the, the risk of, of terrorism that local law enforcement is a first responder to. Um, And our officers need to be prepared to address just even a routine hostage barricade situation. There is no one else that's going to respond to that. The the social workers and the addiction counselors and and everyone else is not going to respond to and address that situation. It's going to be local law enforcement. They need to be properly trained, properly equipped. That may include uh, having a SWAT team. They may be wearing green BDUs. Uh, but there's a reason for that. They may be operating an armored personnel carrier that they got from the federal government. It won't have a a gun on the turret, but it will be armored and it will allow negotiators to get to right in front of the hostage taker and and engage in a dialogue. There will be medical professionals as part of that SWAT team, as most SWAT teams are now incorporating and embedding uh, medical professionals, including mental health professionals and others as a blended response. And these are all good things. But I think to just say that uh, it's militarized based on anecdotal uh, information, observations that I would I would say in, in many ways are naive is, uh, is not the right approach here. I think we need to look at each individual. If we're talking about militarization, we need to look at each individual aspect of that and determine whether it makes sense or it doesn't. I agree with Sue that it's mostly cultural.
1: Thank you, Jason Johnson. and Our last debater on this resolution, Rafael Mangual, uh, the police have become too militarized. Are you a yes or a no?
10: I'm a no, and I'm a no as to both uh, equipment and culture, simply okay. for the reason that uh, there's just no evidence in, in the available data. And, you know, again, I'm going to rely on empirics here. You know, we heard that this is a trend that started culturally in the 1970s. But if we look at major city uses of force, what we don't see is any correlation with use of force and that kind of attitude shift. In 1971, the NYPD uh, shot and injured 221 people. By 2016, that number was down to 72 in Chicago, between 1974 and 1978, police shot approximately 131 people per year. In 2018, that number was just down to 43. We heard about SWAT. Well, let's look at SWAT involvement in cities across the United States. Within the NYPD, ESU officers, emergency service units, which was our, our SWAT team here, uh, and in 2019 did not record a single shooting. In 2018, ESU officers were involved in just one shooting. In 2017, Just two. In Chicago, SWAT teams filed just 26 or 0.003 percent of the department's 10,068 tactical response they have to file when uh, a use of force like a punch, a kick or a gunshot is recorded. If we consider a a comparison, an international comparison between us and the UK, we do not see uh, varying rates of of, uh, civilian complaints with respect to police use of force. The rate here in the United States is 7.5 force complaints for 100,000 officers. In the UK, where most officers are not even armed, it is 7.2 for 100,000 officers. As to the 1033 program, there have been multiple empirical analyses of these i'll quickly i know i'm out of time talk about three what they all found was that uh the 1033 program is associated with declines in officer injury declines in officer uses of deadly force declines in suspect injury particularly because of the mechanism of deterrence and there actually is some evidence uh, for this, as Rick Rott noted, from the uniform literature, which actually shows that the police are communicating outwardly uh, a sense of authority, that people respond to that by uh, disengaging violently uh, or being less likely to engage violently. All right, let's move on and to that means let's
1: something. move on to some general discussion. But Raphael, while we do that, I, I just want to ask you, can I summarize the point? You just came with numbers on, on yes. for your argument. Can I summarize that by your saying that in general, compared to say 20, 30 years ago? that there is less violence in the interactions between police and the population than there was 20 or 30 years ago. There's less violence. That's right. All right. I want to take I want to take that I want to know number 1 I, I want to take it to Vikrant. Do, do you challenge that assertion? And if you don't, does did, did Rafael just blow up the whole notion that the militarization issue is one of concern at all? That militarization is as Jason had said the wrong word here.
7: No. Not, well, let me begin by saying that I, I don't challenge the assertion that there is uh, you know, less police violence uh, than there have been in periods in the past that Rafael is talking about. I, I think that is true. And I think I believe Rafael has written about this. To some extent, what we are seeing is concerns that are erupting because of things like viral videos. Now, having said that, I don't think that that blows up the argument. These Uh, these incidents of violence do happen and they still happen more frequently than I would like to see them happening. They should be reduced. It's also true that uh, we do have these viral videos and like it or not, uh, they're out there and they really, really damage police community relationships. Police officers should be the very first one saying we want to do everything we can to ensure that we have good relationships with the members of the community, that they don't view us as warriors, that they do view us as guardians, they view us as protectors and helpers. And these really terrifying weapons don't help that process. I should note, by the way, that I I take Jason's point that um, we live in a uniquely militarized society of uh, civilian militarization. It's not Japan, it's not Belgium, we're never going to have uh, that kind of reduction in police militarization. But you can still have reasonable limits on these things. I read stories about uh, the city of Keene, New Hampshire, population 24,000, having an armored tank to guard its pumpkin festival. Uh Those kinds of things happen. Those are real. It's a real story. And, you know, you might say in response, well, you know, there is a terrorism concern there. I think the way that you handle terrorism is that you're a realist about the fact that, yes, some police departments are going to need very sophisticated weapons. Yes, New York and L.A. and Chicago, these places can serve as nodes and you can very rapidly deliver these weapons to places that need them, if they happen to be needed in a small uh, suburban or rural area. Okay. But the idea that you would give those weapons to twelve thousand or eighteen thousand different police departments—I so, just don't see that. As let me fresh. bring
1: in. Let me bring in Surar.
6: I just want. I just want to clarify something. <clears throat> we don't. Police officers. We're not saying they have to be either warriors or guardians. They have to combine both. Hmm. They have to see themselves serving the role of a guardian that they must also have warrior skills warrior courage and warrior equipment the problem we have with the appearance of over militarized police is a failure of leadership and that are i'm talking about the people who make decisions about when that equipment will be pulled out it is patently ridiculous to be a, to bring a tank to a pumpkin festival some of the things we saw in ferguson that inflamed the country were an inappropriate display of that military equipment you need to have strong leadership that has the courage to tell officers what kind of behavior is okay and not, and where where the equipment should be used. But I think it would be a terrible disservice to our communities to say you have to pick one or the other. So,
1: so you you, you spoke in your opening on this particular motion about you have concerns about a culture, but yes. you, you say it's it, but you think the equipment is necessary. But we heard Vikrant. Yes explicitly say, and Paul Butler, you know, more implicitly said, the equipment kind of affects the culture that one, that, you know, especially Vikron said, you know, young men get these guns, they want to use them. And
6: that's why you need strong leaders. (laughs)
1: But, 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 but I want to ask you, do you think that's a real dynamic? Do you think that, that the weapons sort of attract a kind of certain either individual or uh, elicit a certain kind of behavior?
6: So, Driving fast with lights and siren and having guns, yeah, that, that is going to attract people that are attracted to, to excitement and adventure. We have to look at how we recruit police officers, but we can't, we can't discard important equipment because we don't have strong enough leadership to manage the culture of their agency. We need to pay more attention to that.
1: Would anybody on the panel like to suggest what equipment should be discarded that's now in the hands of police forces? Me, 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 me. Go, Paul. Sure.
8: Um, how about the, the bayonets and the grenade launchers? I agree. Remember, President Obama didn't uh, take away everything. He took away those. And the cops were mad about that. That's why Attorney General Not said, all the cops. Done. Well, en- enough that he got a standing ovation at the FOP convention when he announced that they were getting the bayonets back. But, you know, the issue isn't only the specific warlike weapons. It's as soon as that their culture. So 80% of police arrests are for nonviolent crimes, things like jumping a, turn with a subway turnstile, not paying tickets, poking weed in public. Clearly you don't need warrior equipment for that. Again, even for the more serious crimes, you don't need the bayonets and their grenades. The problem Very quickly is Sue talked about TV show SWAT. Jason used a phrase I really like. He said, engage in a dialogue. That's how police make serious cases like homicide. They run chasing the bad guys like you see in SWAT. Think of law and order. All they do in law and order is go from one office to a home, to a park, to a garage, talking to people. And if your experience with cops is that they're warriors, they're out to get you and to lock you up, you're not going to want to talk to them, which is why the police don't solve most crimes, including most serious crimes. Does anybody
1: not agree that there's a culture problem? Does anybody feel that that's exaggerated or is there? And and it's fine if you all agree on something, even though it's a debate, because we're trying to shed light. Do you all agree that there's actually essentially a cultural problem in police forces that in in the sense of being too militarized? I think, Rafael, I you disagree in a yeah. sense.
10: yeah. Yeah, I, I disagree in the following way. To the extent that there has been a cultural shift toward militarization, I have yet to hear any evidence connecting that culture with the kind of negative outcomes that are bringing us to this table here today. Right? It's there the trust. The,
6: the negative. The negative outcome is broken trust. Not. We're not. It's not about the crime rate or the number of shootings, it's caused a break in public trust.
10: Right, but if you look at levels of public trust in Gallup polls or other polling, of, you know, over the last two decades, trust in the police has remained essentially constant. Uh, again, I just have yet to hear any kind of, of, of causal evidence actually linking the two together. What we see crime has
6: gone know. down, crime got, has gone down, training has improved, but trust right. hasn't. And, and the, the uh, clearance rate for
8: homicide is 60%. In cargo the clearance rate for shooting is lower than 20%. That's your evidence. Again, make those cases is when the community trusts you. When the community doesn't trust you, they don't talk to the cops. And then we can... So, Rafael, so you're, 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 t- you're t- hearing, Rafael.
1: Yeah, Rafael, I think you're being told nobody's questioning your numbers. And at Intelligence Squared, we appreciate people who bring numbers and evidence. But I think they're saying they're not relevant; that they're not they're not the relevant metric. And so, yeah, I, take that
10: I, 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 I'm not sure I'm, I'm I'm understanding why that's so. Right? I understand the mechanics of the argument that 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 trust is is somehow, um, you know, uh, being affected by this this militarization. But is there really any evidence that police were trusted to a higher degree in the 1970s by the black community on the south and west side of Chicago? I don't think that there is. Um, what, you know, yeah, are, are, are there low clearance rates in some jurisdictions as compared to others? Yeah, but the clearance rate in New York City is significantly higher and you you, you can actually see that, that we have just as much militarization. And again, I would just point to the data from Chicago SWAT. They are, are involved in 0.00. Three percent of all uses of force by police in that city. I have yet to see SWAT officers enforcing the kind of nonviolent crimes that Professor Butler uh, uh, has noted. The reality is is that they are not involved in that kind of enforcement effort. There there are some shows of authority, you know, through rolling the tanks down when there's a riot or a protest. But the evidence uh, shows pretty clearly that that's actually associated with good things. Again, one last one last study I'll point to Olubenga Agolor, a senior economist, very liberal. Center for American Progress did a study of the 1033 program and found, quote, little evidence of a causal link between general military surplus acquisition and a documented use of force incident. In fact, the acquisition of military vehicles leads to fewer use of force incidents. And that is because of the other data that show that that kind of show of force actually deters criminal behavior, which minimizes those kinds of fraud interactions that I think we're we'll all aware all, right. all right, Jason Johnson. Let, me, how let how
1: me bring in Jason. I, he hasn't I, t- ha- okay, I, Paul I, I Tank on every, every corner. I'm sorry, Paul, I I, I was talking over you, Paul, and I want to hear what you had to say. And then I want to go to Jason.
8: No, I was just saying uh, what we were just from Vic is a great argument for a a tank and a bayonet on every street corner in Chicago.
9: Jason. Well, there you have it, John. The question was, is anyone exaggerating the issue of militarization? And I think we just heard it. Um, American police are not using bayonets. They're not using uh, grenade launchers. And that's a great talking point. That's a great thing to say to, to attract attention to this. But that's actually not happening. Uh, the, I don't know what happened at the FOP convention. My, I suspect that maybe the attorney general said that they were going to open the 1033 program back up. I can promise you if he mentioned bayonets or uh, grenade launchers, that would not elicit a positive response. But It's not police equipment and it's not used by police in America. So I think really we just need to focus on what the real issues are and not just, um, you know, inject a bunch of um, ex- exaggerated rhetoric.
1: Okay, that is it for our program, Debating Guns in Three Acts. We hope that you have enjoyed this program. I hope it was enlightening and a bit more in-depth and offering more nuance than you might find elsewhere. I want to say thank you again to all of our debaters. And thank you to our audience, you, for joining us, for being part of this, for helping us to raise the level of public discourse by insisting that debaters debate well, that they be smart, that they bring information, that they bring logic, and all the rest of it that we enforce and believe in here at Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan from Intelligence Squared US. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.